Hey folks, welcome back to the Wild Podcast. I'm your host, Dylan Ayers. And in this podcast, we want to share mentorship to learn how to hunt, fish, and gather wild food. Our goal is to reduce barriers and create an inclusive and welcoming community for all folks who want to learn how to eat wild. So join us as we share stories, ethics, adventures, and knowledge about a way of life that's rooted in eating wild. Hey folks, welcome back to the Wild Podcast. I'm your host, Dylan Ayers. Hey, so in this podcast, I'm joined by Chef Dan Hayes. He's also known as the London Chef. Now, if you happen to have stumbled across this stuff, you may have seen him on the Moose Meat and Marmalade show. It's produced by the APTN Network here in Canada. And he's teaming up with uh, Art Napoleon, who is a chef and a bush cook. And uh, Dan is a classically trained chef from the UK and the show follows them around on adventures. They go to different indigenous communities across Canada. Uh, they hunt a little bit, cook a little bit and uh, tell, tell stories along the way. And it's really fascinating. It's a fun, fun show uh, to learn about, well, wild food. Uh, but more importantly, it's, it's fascinating to see that diversity of indigenous cultures across Canada and they do a really great job of uh, pulling it together through storytelling. So, uh, um, I've been meaning to read out, reach out to Dan for some time because he does a good job of sharing stories about hunting through food. And that's kind of what this podcast is about was, you know, I really wanted to talk to him about exactly that. Like, how do we tell better hunting stories through food? Well, it turned out that Dan has just got lots going on and he's super fun to talk to. So the conversation kind of drifts around a little bit, but we sure cover some interesting stuff in particular, kind of some interesting perspectives on coming to this country and um, and getting this opportunity to immerse yourself in indigenous communities and, and culture and and what um, and what a profound impact that's had on Dan and um, yeah gosh this was a cool conversation lots of lots of great stuff to cover here so before we get into things I'll just take a couple of minutes to tell you what's new with Eat Wild hopefully this podcast will get out to you ahead of our Eat Wild Backpack Hunter workshop so if you are in and around the uh, southern part of BC, you can join us for a two-day how to hunt in the Alpine backpack hunting workshop. It's tons of fun. We spend a couple days up in the Alpine and teach folks how to uh, basically pack light, how to be safe in the mountains, how to plan a hunt in the mountains, and then how to be effective as a, as a hunter in the mountain conditions, spot and stalking, how to do meat care in the mountains. So tons of fun. It's one of my favorite workshops to do. We're doing that uh, mid-July, so you can check that on our website if you're interested. And we're getting close to hunting season, so I'm madly trying to build a couple of more of our online hunting courses ahead of the hunting season i'm just finishing up elk hunting so if you're planning an elk hunt this year you can join myself and uh, my friend mike bridger who's a elk biologist and avid elk hunter and dive into several hours of us talking about our elk hunting strategy and i'm hoping to have something done for moose and hopefully the deer species ahead of the hunting season so, so keep an eye out for that you can find those all on our under our online courses in eat wild all right. And other news, as I mentioned, we've got a, a new team of sponsors um, coming online for the podcast. And again, I appreciate folks who are listening and asking questions because it helps drive the, the, the confidence of the sponsors to then help us continue to do this podcast. So I'm excited to be working with 
the iHunter app. And if you've been to any of my workshops, you know that uh, I we kind of use it as a foundational piece of our learning. It's a navigation tool. It's a mapping tool. It uh, And there's a bunch of other layers. So as we go forward, at some point in these podcasts, I'm going to introduce the iHunter scouting tip of the week. And I'm going to just give you a tip that I really appreciated about using this app. And I was just out on a tail end of the bear hunting season. And I'm trying to find a place where bear are hopefully congregating. I'm in a big area and there's a lot of logging. And I'm like, where do I focus? There's lots of access. There's actually quite a bit of green up everywhere. So I don't really know where to focus my my effort in bear hunting. And I'm looking for like the, the probably the highest value green regen. And I think that's where the bears are going to be. So after sort of driving around looking and not really finding any concentration of sign, I used the iHunter app to identify where the more more recent wildfires had occurred. So in the in the app, you can add layers. Or you, you have a base map, which shows you obviously where you are, but then you can add different layers. And one of the layers is the last five years or so of wildfire boundaries. So if I add that layer, I can actually, it'll overlay uh, a polygon or a shape basically that just shows you where uh, the forest fire occurred in a previous year. I'll give you the date and the location. So we actually weren't too far from a fire area, so we drove to that next area. When we got in there, all of a sudden, it actually was quite a bit more open because all the, the trees had burnt off or majority of the brush had burned off and grass had been coming up, and it was just a much, much better, much, much more huntable zone, um, lush grass and a lot more bear sign. We didn't end up killing a bear on the trip, but we certainly had a better hunt because we were using the iHunter tool for scouting and kind of giving us some guidance as to where we should look next as opposed to just kind of blundering around until we ran into those uh, those features that we're looking for. So anyways, if you haven't already done so, get the iHunter app. As we go forward, we'll do a, a tip in each podcast about how I use the iHunter app to make me a better hunter, and we'll get into that. I'm also waiting for a package to arrive. The uh, Seek Outside folks are just sending me the new sunlight tent, and this is sort of their, they've been designing single wall ultralight tents, but this one is has an integrated bug net and floor so it's kind of eliminating one of the problems with those single wall tents for me is that i typically would use them in the summer season when it's bug season for this single single wall tents and uh, this way i've got bug protection which is something I, I i don't like mosquitoes so this tent might be a game changer for me looking forward to talking more about it if you're interested in checking out their products you can use the discount code eat wild uh, with those folks also as i'm getting through the sponsors here uh, I just picked up several flats of beer from our friend uh, Matt Beer at Beer Brewing in North Vancouver. He just made a considerable donation to my annual uh, fundraiser for mental health. So we're heading out to the West Coast to do our Bud's Big Fish and Derby. And Matt's been a generous con- contributor to that event for the last couple of years, as well as our efforts for uh, fundraising for the, B- uh, for the BC Backcountry Hunters and Anglers Group. So awesome sponsor. So if you're any just produced a discount code for us which is um eat wild 10 so if you want to drop in there and pick up some beers for your next adventure i like their beers because they're all very crisp and light Um, they're the kind of beer that i might enjoy after a long day of hunting when you get back to camp and i hope you enjoy their beer too but i more so appreciate the fact that they're supporting conservation and uh, our efforts to raise money for mental health 
All right. There's a few other sponsors, of course, that we see along the way. We've got West Coast Kitchen is going to send us a package of food for our adventure season here. So I'm waiting for that to pop in the mail. And they produce amazing healthy food for your next adventure. As I mentioned, BC Backcountry Hunters and Anglers, they've come on as a partner in our podcast. And if you're a new hunter and you're looking to build community and trying to find connection uh, to both, whether it's mentorship or just folks that you want to go hunting with, I would encourage you to find your local chapter of the BC Backcountry Hunters and Anglers and show up for one of, they typically have a pint night once a month where they get together, have a presenter come in or just get together and talk about the conservation issues in and around the area. Great place to start, build connections, find that mentorship, find that community. It'll make your hunting journey way, way more fun and certainly more uh, more productive down the road. All right, thanks for bearing with me do this read of all these sponsors. However, I will be going forward trying to build these into the podcast going forward and i'll have to figure out how to do that but um yeah appreciate your feedback as always let's get into this conversation with with chef dan hayes looking forward to this one get to know you a bit and, and chit chat so so thanks for listening to the eat wild podcast but more importantly thanks for being on the eat wild podcast so, well, so chef, thank you for having me a huge <laughs> yeah, privilege chef, no thank yeah. you very much so chef chef dan hayes and and you've got a couple cool things going on and one is you've you've got this you, you've done a bunch of um education around uh food and yep. and and teaching people how to cook and you've got this other project which is really exciting which maybe you could tell me a little bit about is your the moose meat and marmalade project and i think we'll kind of talk about that but ultimately this episode i'd like to try and stick to the, or talk about kind of the connection connecting people to hunting through food is the name of this yep. podcast so yep. thanks for being here welcome dan can you say thank hello you. to the Eat wild audience thank you very much and thank you for having me very very exciting you know um Always, always wonderful to hear these podcasts because I, I think it it gets it gets the message out to the masses, and I think more importantly, it gets the correct message out to the masses. And um, at a time when hunting is sort of unfairly, I feel under attack hugely, um, it's so important to have these sort of carefully, uh, well articulated um, arguments on our side so so thank you dylan for you know the energy i'm sure it takes to to do this so very very important work oh it's a lot of fun and uh so so dad do you do you, do you self-identify as a chef first or or a hunter first well i mean we 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 tend to self-identify as our occupation don't we and i've always thought it's slightly bizarre you know you're at a party and you say oh so what do you do for a living so what do you get up to and it's you know i'm a lawyer or i'm a plumber or i'm a doctor or i'm a teacher or i'm a vet very rarely do you meet someone at a party who says i'm a mountaineer and i like to sail it's always the occupation that comes first which i think is wrong to a certain degree although it does identify us as people you know so i'm a chef that's what I do for a living. I'm a chef. Um, but hunting is a huge, huge part of my life on a daily basis. It's a, 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 a monumental part of my life. And I'm very lucky to say that now it's on a professional level, a huge part of my life as well. Um, and so it's a hell of a question. <laughs> I think I'm a chef. I'm a, I'm a chef, but hunting is a huge, huge part of my life. And, you know, recently 
it it's become a part of my professional life as well so yeah yeah i i i do like i think it's a funny thing that we you know, I, I remember like when you meet someone at a party, like, you know, back in my single days, I, I would try to not ask the question like, hey, what do you do? I'd rather say, yeah. what do you like doing? Like, what, what's your what's your thing? Like, what do you get excited about? Because, you know, not only yeah. does that sort of allow people to sort of share what they're most excited about, it's a lot more interesting generally than what people do. Um, you know, yeah, no, exactly. You yeah. Train whales or something like that at the, you know. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, cool. No, that's that, 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 that landed well. Okay, so I'm going to give you a couple of warm-up questions here. The other one is, yeah, what great. is your favorite species to hunt? And on the same, in the same answer, I'd like to know about your favorite game meat to eat. Well, you know, I, quite frankly, my favorite game meat to eat, really, boringly, is black-tailed deer shot on Vancouver Island, because that's what I eat all the time. It's a huge part of my life. If we're eating a steak, if we're eating mince, if we're eating roast, if we're eating stew, typically it's black-tailed deer from Vancouver Island. Um, I, I get very, very excited about the six species of deer in the UK that I grew up with. And when I'm back in the UK, I love to go stalking for. I think we'll get the terminologies of hunting in the UK down as well, because that's an important <laughs> thing. Um, yeah. But you know my my favorite things are hunt actually it's it's two birds on here in canada it's two birds it's snipe and bantail pigeon oh and they neither of which i ever my... thought to hunt or or had any interest yeah. in hunting so this is so this is interesting so so, so, so bantail pigeon bantail pigeon is the shortest um season in in canada in bc it's from um, I believe the 5th of September till the 15th or maybe the 15th to the 30th. I have to check, check, check. I'm actually, I'm going to check it right now. That's um, the iHunter app, of course, as, as everyone has. I think it's important to, um, important to get that, get that right. Um, and 15th of September to the 30th of September. And, um, you know, my if if in in my hunting year, if I can shoot a brace of snipe and a brace of bantail pigeon, that's me. That's me. Like that, they're not the best to eat, but in terms of a challenge, that is my challenge. And I I love hunting snipe and I love hunting bantail pigeon. Now, what's a brace? What's a brace? It's two birds. Two birds. So if you got a couple of birds, birds. Uh, uh, what's and yeah, uh, yeah. why why two not four? Because I don't think, I think there's no need to shoot for. They're not that great to eat. They're, they're good. I mean, as, as all as all the pigeon species are, the best pigeons to eat are in the UK, wood pigeon, Columbus, Columbus. Fabulous birds to eat. Unbelievable. Um, but uh, they're so challenging. I mean, you've seen bantail pigeon all the time when you're out there, you know, up in the tall conifers when you get those little breaks of, you know, breaks of conifers up in a clear cut like, I mean, they're so challenging and they're such incredible birds and they're, you know, they're, they're, they're amazing. And then snipe in the wetland, like you are coated from head to toe in mud um, and your boots are full of water if you're out in snipe habitat, hunting them properly, walking them up with a shotgun. It is exhausting. And to, to hit one is, you know, I mean, God, they're fast. They're the most incredible creatures. 
And you have to be careful because, you know, there's also killdeer and oyster catchers and dowitchers and all the other, you know, um, long-beaked shorebirds. So you have to be damn sure that what's flushing is a snipe before you even get a bead onto it. Um, and by the time you thought about getting a bead on it, it's 40 yards down there zigzagging away from you. It, it, unbelievable creatures. And um, I'm often humbled by them hugely, yeah. Hey, so do you like the channel as a chef? When you take an animal that's what we consider less desirable, and we have a yeah. spectrum of meats that we have in the hunting community, sure. and we all place them in different plate in different position here. Um, but when you get down to the the, the snipes and, and what you know, which I use or, or pigeon, which are maybe not the most desirable, do you enjoy the challenge of making them taste amazing as a chef? Um, I what I tend to do is is regardless of what they're like, they taste amazing to me because of the challenge of, of getting it, you know, and sometimes, you know, it's like that first trout you catch as a kid and it's, you know, a stocked rainbow and it's a bit muddy, but God, it tastes amazing, you know, and it's it's a little bit like that. I mean, as we speak right now, I have a big fat Drake Mallard roasting in the oven and it smells amazing and I know it's going to be amazing. Um, but it wasn't very challenging to, 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 to shoot him, to be perfectly honest. Um, when you have one of those snipe, one of those bantail pigeons, it's such a big challenge that they somehow taste better than they should as a result. Um, but I do think, yes, sometimes taking a very sprucey spruce grouse and turn it in, turning it into something delicious is, is great. Or a big old, you know, jackrabbit that's tough as hell. Um, maybe the elk hunt didn't go to plan you know, and so you shot a big jackrabbit and you're going to have that for dinner. And how do you turn that into something delicious and tasty? And and I think um, often it isn't the target species we should always be thinking about. It's sometimes all the, all the you know, the bycatch that one can get along the way. That's sometimes very important to think about. Yeah, that's lots of fun. I, I was just thinking about, I I was, I t it took me 10 years to, to, to harvest, to get my, a, a ram, a, 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 yeah. a, a, a stone sheep. And yeah. to be honest, like it's, it's super fun to have sheep meat in the freezer, but yeah. I can't say that yeah. I, I, I absolutely love it. Like I, I like it. I enjoy it. It's different. And I definitely have a big ceremony anytime a piece of meat comes out <laughs> and yeah. I really, and I do my very best to do treat that meat with, you know, ultimate sure. respect, which I, which I think I do everything, but, but it, it, you know, at the end of the day, it's not as good as like, you know, that, that two and a half year old white tailed deer, I, you know, from oh. last year, right? Yeah. It's never <laughs> going to be the same as, you know, it's never going to be the same as the, as, you know, as the, the braised shanks off a, off a, off a, a spike or a fork, um, yeah. you know, black tailed deer from this part of the world. But, and I mean that, you know, it's funny, I was just being interviewed for something an hour ago and, and it brings us up to the difficult topic or can be difficult of, you know, trophy. Is it trophy? Is it meat? And like, no one can honestly say that, you know, the sheep hunt is about meat. As a result of the hunt, you get some lovely mutton in the freezer that makes great curries and all the rest of it. But primarily, it's not about that. I mean, it has to be what, nine years or full curl. So you would never choose a nine-year-old you know a nine-year-old i mean you, you talk you think a nine-year-old sheep on a farm 
good lord that's gonna be some mutton that's gonna be some muttony mutton you know you better get ready with those jerk spices and you know um so i mean it's you know i think it's an interesting one isn't it yeah yeah it is it is a, it is a challenging one to navigate for sure and i i put a well just on, on the on the the sheep i actually the sheep is actually surprisingly amazing so so the round we got was is 10 years old and yeah. it's actually tender, which was yeah. really tender, like surprisingly tender. Even yeah. the tough cuts are, are tender. And it does yeah. carry a bit of muttoniness, but it, yeah. it it doesn't have that, like, you know, I, I sort of, you know, it doesn't have sort of like that. And that's sort of you, you got a real muttony. It's almost like you're licking this, the hide or the, the hair. It's just so, yeah. so fuzzy and like, ah, it's, it's, it's none of that. It's actually very pleasant. Yeah. It's just not as, as lovely as some other meats, but um, but yeah, no, I was surprised as, a, as an old animal, it was surprisingly, uh, beautiful meat. Um, as someone, you know, I don't eat any domestic meat at all. So, um, whenever I'm given something that's, that's different to my usual spectrum of, of wild game, it's very, very exciting because, you know, if I'm given some elk or I'm given some caribou, or I'm given some sheep or some goat, or it's mm -hmm. very, very exciting for me because my typical, you know, my, my freezer is full of black bear and black tailed deer and rabbit and grouse and duck and goose. And, you know, that's my, that's my, my, my staples. So whenever I get given something else, it's very, very exciting because it's, uh, it's, 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 a, it's a change, you know, and, and, um, it's, it's a, it's a, you know, a really wonderful change. Yeah. Well, it's, I don't know if it's worth 10 years of two week hunts, uh, for, <laughs> The sheep meat. So you coming back to your question about the trophy versus, I mean, we've, we've all found ways to have this conversation around trophy hunting yeah. versus meat hunting. Yeah. And I, I think it's up to, I think, I think, you know, for, for me, like I wouldn't trade those, those expeditions and the investment of time and effort into those hunts, but I, the outcome wasn't a, a trophy for me. It was, the adventures and the experiences and the, and the, 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 me the memories and the, and the everything that goes with it. Exactly. Yeah. And, so I, and you so know, you're, you're, you're forced to, I mean, big, big regulations based around conservation force one essentially to trophy hunt when we're talking sheep, because it's, it's very select harvest, isn't it? I mean, it's nine years, nine year old, nine, nine years or, or, or older and full curl. So my understanding, I've never been sheep hunting, but you can see a lot of rams before you 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 figure out one's legal. Yeah, yeah. And, and the intention be, of the um, regulation is is so it's so it's an eight year eight year old ram by age, so it has to be into its past, so into its lived eight winters basically, okay, and then yeah. and that's their annual eye demonstrates that that they've survived a winter basically, um, yeah, and or full curl. Uh, but the I think the intention of the of the regulation is that. They typically will be past their breeding age once they get into like the nine and ten year old class rams. They, they uh, the sure. younger rams will take over the breeding by then. So I think the intention is you leave that sort of six, seven, eight year old class to to do the breeding, and then the older rams are likely not going to survive the winter and likely not going to be breeding. Um, yeah, I, I wonder about that if if in fact that's how it all works, but. I think at the end of the day, it just really limits the number of animals that get killed. Because yes, I've seen lots of. It makes it very, know, it makes it very hard, doesn't it? Yeah, very very hard. It almost to the point of like it's almost insanity how hard it is to to actually 
well, not insanity, but it's it's very difficult. And, and I'm not looking forward to sheep hunting again. Like I'm I'm very excited to be like that's it. Like it's I've won and done. I'm I I would way rather yeah. spend the next ten years, two weeks at a time, just looking at mule deer, for the most part. Yeah. But yeah. Um, at least I'm saying that now until I dream up the next adventure hunt that involves sheep hunting, and then I'll get <laughs> excited again. But yeah, yeah, that, absolutely. <laughs> But yeah, right well, on. even I mean, yeah, I mean, I've never, I've, I've, I've never, I've never been. And you know, the truth is, my lifestyle doesn't allow for long trips. The only time I do, you know, when I do long trips, it's work. It's 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 moose meat and marmalade, and I'm we're off somewhere, and you know, hunting forms a very small part of uh, what it takes to film an episode, which is typically four days. Um, maybe that's one day of it. Um, so I get to go to some amazing places, but personally. It is all on Vancouver Island, and most of it is a day at the most, maybe two days or perhaps a day and a half. But I just don't have the lifestyle that allows for long trips. I've never put in for an LEH, which people can't believe, but I haven't oh. because I know I probably can't go. And Interesting. Um, I, I, just, I just don't have that, that, that uh, uh, a life that allows for that with work and, and children and family and all the rest of it. So I, most of my, well, no, not most, all of my hunting is Vancouver Island, typically some Southern Vancouver Island. And I'm at it constantly. You know, it's, it's, um, I, I, I'm very lucky that I have some ability to help farmers out, out of, out of season. And, um, it's, it's, it's what I do. And I, and I, you know, I, I I'm just as happy walking around with a 410 after a rabbit as I am in the spring trying to get a big black bear. And I think it's very important that people understand that hunting doesn't have to be expensive. In fact, most of it isn't. And, and I, you know, I, I'm sort of, I see a lot of, um, a lot of uh, hunting portrayed as this very sort of exotic thing that requires lots of equipment and you have to be in a particular type of physical fitness and you have to have guides and it all involves this, that, and the other. And in actual fact, you can buy a perfectly good, perfectly good shotgun for a hundred bucks and um, get your, you know, get your license and get your pal and get your hunting license number and um, off you go. I mean, it, you know, it literally it's, it's not a lot of money to, and it's very accessible if you live somewhere like this. And I think it's important people realize, you know, that you can start off, you know, puttering around on the, on the, on the, on the spur roads and logging roads after grouse for next to nothing. And, you know, you can be part of it all. I love that. I, it was something that my, my wife and I moved uh, from the city back to the Sunshine Coast where I, I lived here before and owned a house, yeah. but been renting it for a number of years. Um, but it's been, I've been really enjoying this idea of, you know, investing in like the, like the five mile diet sort of like yeah. what can i harvest yeah, within yeah. five miles not even like 500 yeah. meter diet really um of, yeah. of this place that i live whether it's prawns out you know on the ocean out front or or black bear behind the house or black tailed deer and and like what a like how how fortunate but you know it, it i i think that's really cool what you're what you're talking about particularly on the vancouver island where like you don't have to expand your radius too much far beyond you know five or ten miles to really have access to so many wonderful things from the wild and uh no, no, yeah, ex exactly. yeah and i mean we're fishing right on our doorstep and those photographs i took that i sent you this morning where i was out scouting for bear i mean you know that i left the house at 5 a.m and at 6 a.m i was parked and hiking up a spur road 
you know, a 10 kilometer hike up with no cell service in wolf, cougar, black-tailed deer, bear, grouse. I mean, you know, it's, it's everywhere. And there's quail out there as well and rabbits. I mean, it's um, an elk. So it's very accessible. Like there's, I think there's this mentality. And of course, it's all, it's all relative to what one's used to. So I come from the UK where all land is private. Gun mm. regulations are incredibly, incredibly strict. And so you move here and it's like, what? I can, you know, I can pop into Canadian Tire and buy a rifle and then I can, you know, get a key to a, a, a gate that lets me out into hundreds of thousands of acres. And with a tag, I can just hunt deer from September, you know, from September the 10th to December the, wow, like that's amazing. Whereas other people that have come from more sort of open space and, and, and less regulations would, would, would see it as not very free and open. So I think it's all relative to what one's used to as well. Yeah, and it's also time. I mean, I think that's the real, I mean, I, I think a lot about hunting opportunities, barriers for folks to participate in hunting. And that's what we kind of do at Eat Wild. Yeah. How do you reduce those barriers? Yeah. Um, the one thing that I really kind of got to a place on is that I, I haven't been a huge proponent of hunting bears. And the, the main the main reason for that, it you know, along my own journey of a, as a hunter and as a hunting educator is that, is it like it's complicated hunting bears and it's complicated for people to understand why you hunt bears and having to most non hunters, you know, kind of aren't super comfortable with the idea of eating bear and hunting bears. And okay. so to celebrate that or to bring that into the conversation when you're trying to relate to non hunters, when you're trying to like build relationships and you're, and you throw down, Hey, I was out bear hunting. It's, it's just, it's, it's just not as palatable to folks as, you know, hey, I was out blacktail hunting and here's my blacktail steak. You show up at a party with a, you know, a, a bear leg. You're, you're just not going to have the same opportunity to share this really positive, accessible story with people around hunting, which has kind of been our message up till now. But the yeah. big difference with bears and where it kind of went, kind of rethought things a bit in this past couple of years is that that accessibility with bear hunting is it is so much more accessible to go out and actually equip yourself, gain access to the habitat and ultimately find a healthy population of bears. Like, like yeah. if you're living in the the bottom part of the province anywhere, you most likely have access to bears and then you have access to this, what, what is a very low barrier hunt and ultimately you can fill your freezer or gain access to organic meat. And I think that kind of, you know, trumps the sort of other problem I was talking about, which is the, how do we talk about hunting in a positive way? Yeah. Um, yeah, and I so. think you're right. I mean, I you know, I I have approached it like this, I, and this is what I found. So I am constantly in front of people running cooking classes, and you know, I, I have been for the past ten years, and I don't shy away from the fact I'm a hunter. I couldn't. I'm on international television with a gun in one hand and a dead dead animal in the other. You know, so I I don't I I, I talk to people about hunting. I I I sit there at a meal not eating any of the meat because I don't eat domestic meat, which of course raises the, 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 the question, are you a vegetarian, are you a vegan? No, but I choose just to eat meat that I kill myself, which then brings up the, the, the topic of hunting. And I find that very rarely does one push back if you articulate it well. And um, it, what I found is that so many people are either intrigued by hunting in a positive way, used to hunt, grew up in a hunting family, have been around it, their neighbor hunts, but they moved away and they miss eating deer. There is a connection somewhere. 
It is very, very rare, I find, in fact, and maybe it's because the people that come to me are sort of into food or around food, and maybe it's just the place that I live. Most people have some connection, even if it's a generation removed, for, to, to hunting. And I find that I very rarely get negative pushback as long as I'm open and honest and and talk about it in a in a very matter of fact way that this is what connects me to the plate that the food on my plate I feel proud to do this I I this is a part of my life and um I'm happy to tell you everything openly about it so what are the things that people in, are most interested in, or engage the most on in those types of conversations what are some of the themes People are very, very intrigued by um, where can one hunt? That's a, a question I'm asked all the time. So where can you can you just go and shoot an animal somewhere? And I always I I, re, I relate everything to fishing. I say no. In the same way as you can't just go and catch a salmon anywhere. You can't just get your fishing rod and go salmon fishing. It's strict as to where you can go. And then people say, um, but but aren't it you know? I mean, let, let's talk about geese. That's the classic one. Aren't geese protected? I say, yes, they are protected, as is nearly all wildlife in Canada, in North America. It's protected. It's protected by game seasons. It's protected by bag limits. It's protected by take methods. It's protected by possession limits, as is a salmon. A salmon is a protected creature. Within that protection, you can catch some. But you've got to use the right hook at the right time in the right river, you know, with the right tactic and the right species and the right size limit. You can't just go and catch a salmon. So I try and relate everything to fishing because people stomach the idea of catching a salmon, but don't stomach the idea of shooting a duck. And um, it's all the same. You know, you have to work within the, the clearly set out or not always that clear, but the set out regulations um, within that protection. Yeah, I like that analogy. That, that's a great linkage to folks because I think you, you've nailed it. I think people have developed a comfort. What do you think it is? Do, do you have any insight about, like, you know, why is it that I think that, why do I struggle with killing bears? But I, yeah. you know, when I see a four point white tailed buck, I am like, that's Bang. a dead deer. Like, no problem. I, I, see a bear, I feel, I'm like, oh, what is it? I feel exactly the same way as you do. And I look forward every year to the spring bear hunt. I love it. I love having legal, I mean, like what? First week of June, legal shooting light from 4 a.m. till 10 p.m. And <laughs> unlike deer, every single one of those hours is productive. You know, it's not like dawn dusk. It's like the whole, like oh, those yeah. sunny afternoons, get it catching a tan. You're, it's like very productive, you know, Gl glassing the cuts. Um, I feel identical to you. And, and and why is it so different? But it is. And you know what I did? I went out and I bought a 375 H&H to make mm -hmm. absolutely sure that there is no messing about whatsoever. Because hmm. it is very different when you go bang on a deer with a 308, you see the shot reaction, it runs on, you know exactly it's piled up 20 yards into that bush but it's somehow very, very different with a bear. You know, the way it spins around and it, you know, I mean, it, it, it claws at where it was shot and it's, and it, there is something very different about it. I think we think of our dogs, it's, 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 it's a different creature. And that's why 
I bought a 375 H&H, you know, 300 grain, um, 300 grain bullets. Mm. And you just don't get any of that is, is, you know, I, I mean, shot placement and all that stuff I know, but it changes it. It is done. And, <laughs> done. you know, That's and, 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 and for me, it's not about the danger of following up a wounded bear or any of that stuff. I think people overplay the danger. It's, you know, to make it more exciting. It's not about that. It's just the fact that I want to go bang and the deer and the, and the bear's down. And somehow that is so important to me. I mean, it, look, it's important to cleanly kill a rabbit, cleanly kill a duck, cleanly kill a deer, but there is something different about a bear. And I don't know what it is, Dylan, but it seems like you have the same, the same thing. Well, it, yeah, totally. And I mean, I think it's it's somehow we, you know, we I don't know if we humanize them a little bit or, but it's also ducks. Like, like I don't actually like seeing ducks. Like I, I have, maybe because you grew up and you see ducks and you feed ducks and yeah. then you like yeah. think of shooting these ducks and they're quite, they're quite cute and they're quite beautiful. Yeah. And, you know, I it feels like a lot of killing for, you know, you know, for a bit of duck soup. Speaking of ducks, let me just grab, it's, it's, I, you remind, you reminded me, I've got a, Mallard roasting in the oven. Look at that one. Beautiful. Look at that <laughs> sizzling away. I mean, I I love. Let me hold on. Let me let me come back now. Um, I I absolutely love ducks. I love I love I you know I love hunting ducks. I love eating ducks. That's a big Drake mallard. I freeze them whole. I find they freeze so well whole. It's like nature's packaging, you know. Oh yeah. And. Um, yeah, I mean, you know, I think it's an important, I think it's an important topic. You know, we are, it is controlled violence, is it not? We are taking a life and whether that life is, is, is a, is a, you know, is, is a rat in a trap in the attic or a bull moose. It is a life that we are taking. And mm -hmm. I think, um, I, I think we must never, ever forget that. And I, and, you know, I was then I was just asked, I mean, literally an hour ago by, by, you know, by, by, by someone, you know, why, why I choose to not eat domestic meat. And it's not, I'm against domestic meat. I'm perhaps against huge, the, some of the cruelty and environmental problems of large scale in, in industrial meat production. But one of the big reasons is I'm so connected to my food and what I've done is the opposite to what many people at the moment are choosing to do. Many people are choosing to sort of question whether they want to eat meat and they're doing something even more alarming than that. They're sort of removing the realities of eating meat. So just eat the chicken quickly and try not to think about it. Oh, don't talk to me about it. I don't want to, I don't want to think about it. How mm. disrespectful to an animal is that? I do quite the opposite, quite the opposite. I go out, I shoot a grouse, I, you know, load a gun, pull a trigger, the grouse dies, I pluck it, I roast it, I eat it, and I completely celebrate it in every way, shape and form. My kids help me pluck it, my kids help me eat it, and in every way, we think about that life and we then take the bones and make soup or stock or something. And it's completely the opposite to what seems to be the modern trend of trying to pretend that what's on your plate was never a living creature. Yeah, I think we see that in, in all the food the food processing or, where more and more people are, are moving towards a, a processed food product, whether it's buying pre-made meals or buying yeah. meals that are half prepped for you and delivering them to your house. But there's, there's very yeah. little processing from 
for there's very well there's definitely people are not buying chickens at the grocery store and then breaking them down at home but there is a growing interest which is really cool of people who are like okay taking that step back and say hey i want to I, I want to know about how to break down a bird or break down an animal yeah. so that I can then build a relationship with the farmer and I can tent and then I can at least pay part of that karma karmic price you'll call it for for eating that meat which you know I I, I, I talk about this too or think about this too just just what happens after you've pulled the trigger on the animal and then that relationship with that with that animal and the meat from it all the way to the end and how much more you just you're just so much more focused on every, every bit of it right to how it just if you if you overcook uh, you know a loin steak and i just how how just absolutely troubled i am because i've just the last to finish i'm just at the finish line i've just like fallen on my face and i've like overcooked it by two degrees and it's just done everything else right and then you (laughs) just you know you just let yeah and i mean you'll 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 like you'll know this more than you know as much as anyone like that that feeling of like going to the freezer and pulling something out and you know, you see the label on it and it you, you remember, you remember that that day, that morning, that afternoon, that, you know, hauling it out, that carrying it back, that, or maybe it was yesterday, you know, I shoot, I go and shoot a rabbit with my, with my, with my kids and then skin it and eat it. And then I think about yesterday when we got it and it connects you so much to that moment and that experience and that, and that, uh, that memory of that, of, of, of that life, which you took. And I think it's, perhaps one of the reasons that, you know, if you look at most cultures, um, people do something after the kill. So if you look at the the, the Inuit in Nunavut, you know, you, you warm that little bit of water up and you give the seal its last drink. If you're in Europe, you put a, the last bite, you put a twig in the deer's mouth and a twig in the hunter's hat to give it its last meal. You know, many indigenous cultures here will put some tobacco down. And I'm convinced, or, or or perhaps have a shot of whiskey in some other cultures, but I'm, I'm I'm convinced it's that sort of just slowing down and realizing what what has just happened. Well, I tell you what's just happened. You've just taken a life, and you can't take that lightly. Absolutely. Well, this is what I, lo- I what I've really enjoyed about following you and, and catching the episodes of of, of the Moose Beat and Marmalade show is it really shows a, a connection to hunting that is not about hunting like it's about yeah culture and food first so i haven't even got it i mean we've already been going for an hour and i was i, I was hoping to just kind of warm up with you and chat and then i would ask you about how you fell in well maybe i'll ask you how did you fall into moose meat and marmalade well moose meat and marmalade i mean i met i met art on a set of a show called tiger talk we were at the time we had a catering company and we were doing the catering for for it and he was um one of the one of the the, the hosts of a show called Tiger Talk Kids Show on APTN, and we met. And um, apparently, my story isn't accurate, but I'm fairly sure it is. He was walking along the line and getting, you know, lasagna and garlic bread and all the rest of it. And standing behind him was the executive producer Hilary Pryor, and she overheard he and I talking about growing up hunting and sort of connected the dots slightly. And uh, and and that's when it all started. And I mean, that was a long, long time ago. And these things take a while to get going, but now we're now we're on season seven, and we film half of it in Europe and the UK. Of course, I'm from the UK. You can probably tell from my silly voice, and the rest <laughs> we film in Canada. And um, fact, it's a huge part of my life. Yeah, huge part of my life. And and for the audience, just give us the just give us the the premise of the show and and, and 
and I'll ask you a couple more well, questions. Well, es- essentially, it. art is um, Soto Cree from and Soto Soto Cree and Deniza from um, Treaty Eight, um, just on Moberly Lake, just outside Chetwind, and um, I'm obviously English from the UK, and we head off and we hunt and we fish and we cook. And we're nearly always in an, in an indigenous community if we're in Canada. And then if we're in Europe or the UK, typically something that connects me to it. Um, and he leads an episode and I lead an episode. And we're at, what, 13 episodes a season. We're now at season seven. So quite a few episodes. We take it in turns to lead an episode. Although recently we sort of forget who's leading the episode. When it started, it was very much, he was the hunter with a gun and I was the chef with a knife. Well, he's a great cook and I hunt. So in actual fact, it's sort of gone from chalk and cheese to just sort of being two chunks of cheese sort of sliding along together. Um, and we sometimes are halfway through an episode and we sort of have to look at each other. Whose episode is this? Um, so it's, it, 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 it's it's you know, it's something that I owe so much to because Look, it's great. I mean, my father often says to me, how the hell did you find someone to pay you to go and hunt and fish all over the world? But that's not the point. The important point is as a white guy arriving in Canada 16 years ago, I have had the experiences in indigenous communities that I think would have been impossible, absolutely impossible to get in almost any other way. And I'm now welcomed and known and you know, it, it, it will continue to be whatever direction my, my life and work goes in. Um, indigenous communities will continue to be a huge part of my life. So I'm, I'm, I'm truly grateful for that. Yeah. That's uh, we've answered all three of my next questions with that. I mean, really, I wanted to ask oh, you. About. Sorry. I, best, I, just, <laughs> no, I, talk, I just, like, just Dan, shut up. If I'm talking no, too no, much, no, you know? perfect. I mean, <laughs> clearly you work in television or something. Cause you, you know, no. you know what people are looking for, but I mean, uh, yeah, and that's another. I mean, I I I find it interesting because, you know, what just reflecting on the experience of of, you know, coming from, you know, we we in Burst Columbia we have this incredibly complex, um, like uh, as 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 settlers and indigenous communities, we have this very very complex relationship, and we have this in challenging path ahead to move towards reconciliation and, and correct past wrongs and create opportunities for every, you know, for, for folks to, uh, you know, just heal and, and, and coexist in a way that's, it's, that's, that's, it's, you know, that's awesome. And, and it's, it's going to be a, a bit of a ride for, but, but I grew up in this, I, I understand this. And as I have an indigenous heritage and I understand kind of, and I came, grew up in a very privileged uh, settler lifestyle, you could say, and, and so, like, I, I, I kind of understand the the foundation of this, but to walk into this like 15 years ago and be like, you know, go, wow, there's these communities are, you know, are amazingly rich and have this incredible culture. Yet, like, why is there this real challenge ahead of us? And and uh, what were your sort of initial thoughts about it was just a, kind of seeing this? Well, here, I mean, I'll tell you this now. I'm, I'm the new guy. I'm the new guy to these shores. And I find myself constantly educating people that have lived here their entire lives, sometimes 60 years, about, you know, challenges that indigenous communities at times can face. And 
I find myself constantly educating people about the realities of of uh, of of colonization and the and the horror the horrors of it, you know. And I it so it's it's quite bizarre in many ways that the sort of the new kid is the person doing the educating. Um, and it and it does sort of highlight and showcase so well what a terrible job we've done of 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 educating the the um the non-indigenous community of the realities of um what colonization did to this country um and what colonization did to the to the, the to the first peoples here so that i find interesting i mean I find, to answer your question though, I find life on the res far more similar to life in a European village than you find in Toronto suburbia. I can assure you of that. Now, Toronto suburbia might be made up of of of, of Italian and you know and and and. Croatian and Spanish and you know um but there's more similarity to a European village in a reserve than there is in suburbia and it's the sort of everyone together helping everybody out mentality that I'm drawn to so much and I spent a lot of time in my youth on an island called Ibiza in a little village called Kalayonga and running around as kids there there's some huge similarities to kids running around on the res having fun. And I, I, I think subconsciously that's one of the things that draws me hugely. Yeah. It's funny. I, I, I can totally appreciate that having spent time in, in England and, and, uh, in small towns growing up here and there and, and, and the, and the time I have spent on reserve, yeah. I, I really see that. And I, and one of the things I, I, I can remember about, hanging out my grandmother lived in in Bruton which is this little town outside of London and um I spent some time there as a kid and it was a bit of a trip because people had lived there for in my perception forever right like they that that there was no beginning of when people lived in these homes and houses and on these properties and there's very much this incredible sense of place that people belong to the land on you know in indigenous communities that that is just yeah. so obvious when you become part of when you're when you're welcomed in and 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 you and and you have they share with you it's like so obvious that this and then that whole piece about like the land connection and reconciliation and it's just like it's just like so obvious it's like oh like you've always lived yeah. here and everyone's always lived here and this is why and, you, I, and, and, and you know, here. and it's like, sort of so many things are connected to the land. This, you know, the the, the and, and and also the diversity. I mean, this is the thing. You know, I, I I'm constantly mesmerized by how diverse communities are, and you don't need to go that far down the road to find a completely different language, a completely different spiritual beliefs, with completely different system of law. You know, and that is that is what's so rich and fascinating that um you know at one time it, it was a long couch and couch into victoria was a long way away you know and you had a different a different nation and um that's something that i found really really amazing um i 
you know, wherever we go, we try and learn a few of the local words, which I, of course, forget straight away. But my Cree is getting there. Like, <laughs> I probably can say 50 words in Cree. I can count from one to five. I know most of the animals in Cree. And that's from, you know, spent being around art a lot. And, um, and you know, I feel like that's my, you know, Cree is one of hundreds of languages, but that's my little, you know, tip of the hat to it all. I sort of picked up, picked up some Cree, yeah. So if you were to, what would you take away from from this experience of of being part of Moose Meat and Marmalade? If you if if and when you you leave and move on to other things in life, like what's gonna, what are you taking away from it? Oh, without a shadow of a doubt, my 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 learning of the realities of um, my learnings of the realities of indigenous communities, what they mean, what works, what doesn't work, the problems that exist. Um, and then the th you know everyone talks about the problems, but there's also it's it, there are some visual problems, but that's just a facade to the beauty that's behind it. And I, I've I've really um, I feel I don't know. Sometimes I feel like I become a little bit of a spokesperson for for sort of defending. I mean, it's ridiculous. I even have to, but I am sometimes defending indigenous communities um and that's sort of my my what what i what i do i educate people that know nothing about it and tell them the realities of what did go on what does go on and sort of um change their mind to think a bit more openly about it all yeah well you might be in a very unique situation and the the incredible like the bias that you know non-indigenous Canadians grow up with here that the we have been indoctrinated in a way that we see indigenous people a certain way and we carry racism in a deep deep way that a lot of us can't even see even my my grandfather who is a Métis person you know because of the way he had to grow up had to carry almost racism towards his own people because that's the reality that he grew up in. And so it's, it's, it's just so deep and complex how we carry this, this weight of, of colonization and the impacts. And, and I, I think it's like, a, it's, it's just, there's so much deep programming decolonization that has to happen within our society. And I, and I, and I think even the most woke and, able person to come to this conversation including my like not, like it, it's just it's incredible where what what's what lives within us that we have to process as as no, canadians no, and it's, it's a long journey absolutely. uh anyway that's a pretty it's yeah. pretty challenging <laughs> i don't want to get no no no, no exactly but but you know i mean i i've i've you know what's what's amazing you know i i'm a hunter i i so i i i always have this topic that breaks the ice because i love talking you know you walk you know you chat to chat to see a guy in camo and like you know so what caliber do you use you know and um we you know it always always chat about hunting always chat about fishing always tra chat about trapping and i love to get that knowledge from elders and you know when they tell you things in such a matter of fact way it's it's um so incredible and um yeah, I'm I'm always quite jealous of the simplicity of some of it, you know, like I mean I like you don't need to spend a week researching what kind of tires to drive 
50 yards down a gravel road <laughs> just whatever tires yeah good enough they're good enough and you know i don't know whatever rifle yeah that's sighted in good enough you know and i and, yeah. I, and i'm and i'm slightly envious of that i'm slightly envious of the simplicity of 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 it sometimes um but i, w- I was going to mention something else that you know you didn't ask me the question about it but the uk you know i grew up hunting in the uk people say to me like are there trees in england are there still animals there like <laughs> You know, and, and, and I mean, I don't know if you've been there, but you'd be interested. Of course, it's a completely different system because wild game is bought and sold legally and wild game goes into the food system to the point. And this, and this shows it more than ever. During COVID, game dealers didn't want deer carcasses. So that's red deer, roe deer, seeker, fallow, monk jack and Chinese water deer. They didn't want deer carcasses because restaurants weren't open, food trucks weren't open, pubs weren't open, catering companies weren't open. So game dealers didn't want deer carcasses. So a lot less deer were being shot. And guess what we got now? Huge problem. The numbers of, you know, normally at two and a half million. um, And and we're not sure what they're at right now, but the numbers are vast of every species. Monk Jack have just shot through the roof. And... um, so now anyone involved in getting in deer management, deer stalking is out really trying to bring the numbers back down because the, the numbers went, went out of whack hugely. I mean, it's always a struggle. You can, you can, you know, you can never shoot enough. Most deer managers will tell you, I mean, you, you, you the, it's always a challenge to keep, keep the numbers down. We have no predators, but um, COVID because there was no demand by game dealers for carcasses, they just weren't being shot. And that that shows how much the numbers have gone up. Yeah, that's interesting. It's a total. I, I, my my understanding is it's like it's the richy riches are out there. You know, the landowners are out there, and they're like funny little outfits and and with completely their, wrong, with their completely fox wrong. And... and I don't know how <laughs> we've allowed that to that we've allowed that to sort of that 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 view to sort of be portrayed because. You know, yes, if you want to go and shoot driven red grouse on the estates in Scotland, it's going to cost you a huge amount of money. But to go to go and sit in the blind, uh, you know, we call it a hide and shoot wood pigeon is free. And rabbit shooting is free. And, you know, lamping foxes at night is free. And deer stalking is very, very affordable now because they have to be shot. So you can either do it yourself or you can go out with a, go out with a guide and... Um, you know, I was when I was in the UK last. Uh, my friend and I were on an estate, and we shot nine fallow deer from six a.m. till nine a.m. Um, and you know, delicious meat. I got a little bit of it. Most of it goes to the game dealer, um, but it's 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 not as accessible as it is here because you don't have public land. But this idea that it's only expensive is completely nonsense. Um, I'm kind of interested to know. I, I, I... Like the average person in England, are are they do, do they have biases towards hunting? The similar to say the an, an, say an urban just folk who may be not connected to a hunting community here in BC. Yeah, yeah, exactly the same here. It's constantly under attack, constantly under attack. Um, it's it's very easy to if we talk about deer for example, just deer. It's very easy to defend and articulate the argument for what we call deer stalking. We don't call it hunting there. We call it deer stalking um, because we don't have predators. So you simply, you know, you you, you simply have to shoot deer. You have to shoot deer 
The population, we have six species of deer, only two of which are indigenous, roe and red. Fallow, seeker, Chinese water deer, monk jack are introduced, and you simply have to shoot them, and you have to shoot a lot of them. And because you can go to your supermarket, your restaurant, your pub, your food truck, and eat venison that was shot nowadays with a copper bullet, um, you sort of, it, 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 it's just there. It's talked about, and there's no other way to do it. So it's, you're not, it, it, it's not here where you might use the argument of harvesting a surplus. It's, it's, you have to do it. Otherwise, you, you, you would have an ecological disaster on your hands. Would you say there's a greater social license for the hunt in the UK as opposed to, say, in North America or more specifically BC? I, 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 I don't, I don't know is the truth. It is constantly under attack by, you know, animal rights groups and so forth um, in the UK. And um, I, I, I don't know is, is, is the answer. Um, but it's certainly, you know, a lot of people are hugely against anything that involves a gun and an animal. Many people are uh, hugely involved against guns in general. Um, there's a bit of a class system perhaps involved with it in the UK as well, which adds in another sort of, um, which adds in a sort of nasty uh, element, the sort of, you know, the, the Urban versus rural, yes, but also, you know, upper class versus middle versus lower class, all this nonsense, which is absolute rubbish. You know, the 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 average person going out with a shotgun or a rifle in the UK is not hugely wealthy. They are a regular person. And um, it's, it's a part of the countryside. And it's a small place with a lot of people. And the reason you still have, say, woodland and cover crop and all the rest of it is for the most part for pheasants and partridge shooting, which is done on a large scale in large numbers. And if you didn't have that income from those woodlands, you just simply wouldn't have the woodlands because why keep them, you know? The, the same thing can be said for hunting all over the world, I know, but in the UK, that's it's, 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 re it's reared pheasant and partridge shooting that really shapes the... the shapes the the countryside in the uk hmm. that's interesting that's uh that's yeah. interesting to sort of think through that a little bit do you think we're in a better place like when you started your sort of i'd say you came to canada and you were i mean I'd say over the past 10 years no doubt you've been pretty aware of perceptions around hunting as part of the media yeah. um or creating content um do you think we're in a better place now in terms of telling our story about hunting to the average person in yes. society than we were yes. before? And how so? Absolutely. Absolutely. I think we still can do a lot better. I think we still must do better. But I think case in point, you and I sitting here talking now with however many people will hear it, we, we simply can't hold on to the old fashioned um, viewpoint and excuse my language here well it's my fucking right mm -hmm. that simply doesn't work it doesn't yeah. work you have to carefully articulate the argument for um the the the, the argument and that has to be based around one you know um i want to get my own food but two the conservation side of it has to be talked about 
And, you know, I think that is that is the key thing. I mean, the, not just in Canada, but the world over, you know, how conservation so often um, is, 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 you know, hunters are the driving force behind conservation and conservation is a driving force behind habitats, saving habitats, preserving habitats, thus allowing wildlife and ecosystems to thrive. And people will say, you know, I hate you. I mean, you've seen it, placards next to a mm -hmm. wetland. Hunting wiped out the ducks in this estuary. No, it didn't. Market gunning wiped out the ducks in this industry for commercial purpose. Hunters then brought the ducks back to this estuary and hunter dollars allow this estuary to exist so we don't have a pulp mill there. But they're never going to write that on the plaque. Mm -hmm. You know? It's also, so this is interesting. I, 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 we will, I will end, I think this is maybe a nice place to sort of dig into a little bit, but we should probably try and let you get back to your duck here. Um, uh, speaking of ducks. Uh, I but, mean, imagine, imagine wetlands without Ducks Unlimited, you know? But, but so this is the thing about communicating this story. So, I mean, you know, it's great that you and I are having this conversation on, on my yeah. podcast. And, you know, if yeah. we're lucky, you know, 1,500 people will hear it. But they're all people that are already drinking the, the you know, the, the Eat Wild and, you know, Chef Dan Kool-Aid, right? Because yeah. they, they know yeah. our story. Or they, they're already kind of in this world of like, you know, buying into the, the this type of community and, and, and this ethic around hunting. You know, it's really about reaching those folks outside, which is what I love about your show is because like it's it's it is reaching people yeah. outside, right? Um, but where we get hung up, I think, is like that conversation around the like the role of hunters in conservation and how we invest in conservation. If it wasn't for hunters, then there'd be no wildlife. Like, I, like I think that argument is is a, is a challenging one to to articulate to convey. And it's just quite frankly one that I think that people just they just like they just shut down. They're like, I can't process that. It doesn't make yeah. sense. It, it just like no, not gonna buy into it. Like I'm just gonna continue on with my path that you're killing animals, and by killing animals, you're taking life, and life is sacred. And you know when you can yeah. just go to a grocery store and buy chicken, why would you kill a beautiful deer? Like yeah. that's the real. Like I think that is you're you're managing against that. So like. I like I I think and I'm and I'm curious about this like like we we've been trying that argument for a long time and and do you feel like that argument is getting us anywhere talking about conservation I, as I, a I reality think it has to be I think it's also how it's presented I think you know I I spent a lot of time talking to non-hunters and it. I think one has to know not necessarily the facts because facts are boring. I think yeah. it's co con conveying that message of what happened in North America, what happened over the past 100, 150 years and what, how we've ended up where we are now and simplifying it as if you're talking to children, you know, and simplifying it. And I think that's really, really important. And, you know, turkeys are the perfect example. You know, I'm not, I'm preaching to the choir here, but, you know, using the example of turkeys is the perfect example, you know, of how they nearly disappeared and people that want to hunt turkeys brought them back. And I think it's, it's things like that that are very, very important to be able to, you know, I don't know that many hunters know that. 
I think this is also the thing. Like, I don't know that many hunters really know the true North American conservation model story. And if you don't really understand it yourself, it's very hard to then um, then portray it and articulate it in a in a in a in a manner that's easily digestible. Um, I think your point is great. I don't know. We've been saying the argument for a while, and I don't know if people. Um, buy into it it is a hard pill to swallow you know if we weren't around animals wouldn't be weren't be around and it's not always completely true either but the fact is this animals that we want to hunt typically do very well and animals that we don't want to hunt often fall by the wayside because there just isn't you don't have the rocky mountain the rocky mountain you know owl foundation and as a result, you know, some owls are really struggling because no one really puts the dollar in and looks after them. And I think that's something that's, uh, it's a tough pill to swallow, but it's true, you know? Yeah, absolutely. And I, I, I mean, I, I, I feel like, so my next question is, can, do you think we could gain more ground if we share a different like other stories for example the food story food security health yeah. around food and accountability that karma the karmic responsibility for and is is that a way forward or or yes what, i think definitely i mean i mean if you look at polls you know i i i, I forget what percentage is but this a huge percentage of people are against so-called sport hunting um trophy hunting and a, a, a good percentage of people are, are for meat hunting. Um, now you and I know that if you go out and shoot a fork and then stick its head on the wall, that's now considered a trophy. The fact you've eaten the, 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 the deer is besides the point. So are the two in, in, entwined? Sure they are hugely. But I think um, if you can relate it always back to food, the support is much, much better. It's very rare that you cook someone, you know, a per not the one you overcooked, but the perfect piece of backstrap off, a, off a, a young buck and serve that to someone and they don't like it. Lots of times they might not like a, a well-aged beefsteak. That's strong. Or lamb, that's strong. But like, you know, a, a young black-tailed buck can sometimes be so mild as to be bordering on a bit boring, you know? It's mild <laughs> yeah. meat. Yeah. And... Yeah. um. It's mild meat. And I'm in a position where I get to eat dough as well because of um, some crop protection permits. So it's, it's, you know, you serve that to someone and wow, they're blown away by it. And most of the time they're intrigued and they want to understand it. And I love when people say to me, you know, like, so, so tell me about a rifle. Like, what, what's your, like, how does that work? And you explain to them what a rifle is and the bullets and the, all this stuff and the safety and, you know, and, and, and how you have to be very safe with a gun. And it's, I, I think people are intrigued. I think people are intrigued, but are sometimes held back by some sort of social barrier. And I think it's very, very important, very important that hunting isn't just middle-aged white men. You know, and what I'm my favorite magazine is The Field, The Field out of the UK. And now there are more pages dedicated to women's country wear and, you know, guns specifically for the woman, shotguns in particular, 
than than there are for anyone else and that's fabulous because you know we, we need kids we need women we need we need a bigger cross section of society from all races all backgrounds um and i think i think I think it will do hunting, apart from the fact it's the correct way to go, it will do hunting a huge service when it's not simply, you know, you and I standing here talking and it's people from other sectors of society, you know, you, it, being, being, be, being straight or gay shouldn't make any difference to whether you hunt or not in any way, shape or form, you know? And I think that's really, really important. And it's something we can take from, you know, the, the, um other communities are saying look we don't want you we don't want you to be like us we want you to accept us and i don't want everyone to be a hunter but i want you to accept what i do and i think that's really important yeah totally well if we can keep you know I, I, having conversations that make this space more welcoming and inclusive so that so that's important it's like, I mean, that's what we're struggling with. I think as a community, I think that starts with how we project ourselves out and yeah. the conversations that we're having and how we share our stories on social media. I, I think Dan, you just got to come back and hang out again. Um, yeah, yeah. And because I think we, I, I got about halfway through my, my thought process here is what I wanted to chat with you about. And, uh, I think uh, I I think we got a lot, a lot of ground to cover here yet. So I'm, we'll I'm excited to get to yeah, know we'll you a bit. A lot. I think we could, we could chat. We could probably um, chat forever. And I've got lots of other projects on the go, which I'd love to talk to you about at some point. I always ask people this question on, on the show is that, you know, tell us about the most memorable meal in the backcountry. But I, I'd like you to take us to one of the communities that you have been to on your journey Easy. with Moose Meat and Marmalade. And what was the most memorable uh, wild meal, meal you've had along the way? And, and this isn't just because it's a community. This is in my life. It's a very easy question to answer. It was at the Soto First Nation Culture Camp. A gentleman, wonderful guy called Julian Napoleon, who is the son of Art Napoleon. And at the time he was um, heading up the Woodland Caribou restoration project where they had the maternity pen. And I was very privileged to see that maternity pen. Um, and down on the shores of a lake, they were having the Soto culture camp. He had some cow elk ribs and he was simply boiling them, cut up into short ribs, boiling them in salted water. And I can tell you, I still think about that. I think about that meal on a weekly basis. <laughs> he was just scooping out these perfectly boiled, you know, perfectly boiled ribs where the fat was rendering out and then it was like salty and you just get a little bit of fat coating your mouth, but the meat was just, oh my God. It, it was honestly, it was one of the finest things I've ever eaten. And I think about it all the time. And if I'm ever privileged enough to, um, to, to shoot an elk, I'll be, I'll be making that um, with every rib that's on that animal. Yeah. That's amazing. That's a great story. Um, well, you might just have to put in for an LEH, you know, like one of these days. I know, yeah, Vancouver Island, uh, Vancouver, yeah, Vancouver yeah. Island, Roosevelt Elk, LEH, yeah. Yeah, yeah, I'll, uh, I do an LEH workshop every year where we do like a, an event and um, people come out and learn about how the LEH um, 
program works and we bring in a bunch of Fabulous. mentors that you know have hunted and it creates an opportunity for new hunters to come and engage with these uh, older folks ask questions apply for their leh have a beer connect yeah this has been awesome to get to know you and thank um, you very you know, much thank you hey, and uh if if you know i'll shut this thing down uh but st- stick around for a minute and we can talk hot in a bit um yeah great. Uh, don't hang up just yet but um how can people find you if uh, if they want to follow along as you as you as you carry on with moose meat and marmalade and, and telling your story? yeah thank you um our our Instagram it's all about social media these days isn't it I feel very yeah. um, young and cool that I even know what it is our Instagram is the London Chef the London Chef um, and please please follow us it's it's all food related you know we throw in a little a little bit of hunting and fishing along the way there. Um, and we would love to love to get in, get in contact with anyone interested. And um, of course, Moose Meat and Marmalade, you know, check out Moose Meat and Marmalade. It's um, something that I'm very passionate about. I think any of your listeners that, that, that enjoy hunting, fishing, being out there will love it. But more importantly, you'll learn a lot about indigenous communities by watching the show. And um, that is the key thing here. So great. Well, this has been fun, Dan. Well, I was I, I enjoyed I enjoyed this chat, so we'll sign off here. And uh, thanks, folks. Cheers. And well, cheers. Hey, folks. I hope you enjoyed that podcast. Now, we'd love to hear from you. So, drop us a question either on our Instagram or email me directly at Dylan at EatWild.ca and. We'll do our best to answer that question on our future podcast, or we might even build an entire podcast based on your questions. So thanks for doing that. So if you want to hear more from Eat Wild, you can come join us. We're doing a series of Eat Wild Learn to Hunt webinars. So we're getting together on a monthly basis, talking about all things hunting with a group of mentors through a webinar format. They're tons of fun. Come join us there. Now, if you happen to live in the Vancouver, British Columbia area. We do in-person workshops where we get together, learn fundamental skills for you to be a better hunter. Hope you can hang out for one of those too if you happen to be in the area. Now we'd love it if you could leave a review or a comment wherever you listen to your podcast. That'd be a great help to us. And more importantly, share this podcast with folks who care about the stuff we're talking about. So thanks for doing that. Until next time, eat well and wild. Well.